Amen. Thank you, Hefners. I call them the happy, harmonious, homesteading Hefners. We're in the book of Haggai this morning. The book of Haggai. Let me help you with that one, all right? Go to Matthew and then turn left, all right? And you're going to go through Malachi and Zechariah and then the little book of Haggai. I was trying to find it this morning as I was sitting up here on the platform and I thought someone's taking it out of my Bible. It's so small. These pages are so thin. They were sticking together and I was going straight from Zechariah to Zephaniah and I thought, what in the world? I found it though, all right? Haggai chapter number one this morning. I'm excited to preach this morning. Um, Try to stay within the time, the time that I've been allotted that I allot myself, I should say. This is the first time I've preached in four weeks now on a Sunday. And, uh, and that's just the way the calendar worked out this year with the different things that we've had, mid-year missions, and then I was gone for those two weeks, and then we had revival. And so you're in for it. No, I'm teasing. <laughs> Let me go ahead on the outset of this and say this. This passage has really nothing to do with the fact that we are beginning the process of building, an, uh, hopefully, another church building, all right? You may think that's what it has to do with. It doesn't, all right? Um, Though I do think it can be applicable, all right? But my heart was just moved over this passage of Scripture, and I hope that it will be a blessing to you this morning. We're going to be looking at the verses 1 through 11. Verses 1 through 11. The Bible says this, In the second year of Darius, the king, in the sixth month, in the first day of the month, came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet unto Zerubbabel, the son of Shealtiel, governor of Judah, and to Joshua, the son of Josedek, the high priest, saying, Thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say, The time is not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. Then came the word of the Lord by Haggai the prophet, saying, Is it time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses, and this house lie in waste? Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts. Consider your ways. You have sown much and bring, bring in little. Ye eat, but ye have not enough. Ye drink, but ye are not filled with drink. Ye clothe you, but there is none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put in, into a bag with holes. Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood. Build the house, and I will take pleasure in it, and I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You look for much, and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why? Saith the Lord of hosts. Because of mine house that is waste, and you run every man into his own house. Therefore, the heaven over you is stayed from dew, and the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land and upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil and upon that which the ground bringeth forth and upon men and upon cattle and upon all the labor of the hands. Father, I pray this morning that you'd open our hearts to this passage. Father, I pray that I would only sow those things that please thee. Father, that you would be glorified in what's done this morning. We love you. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Now, We're working through the Minor Prophets in our Sunday School series, and I'm not going to spend probably what I should spend uh, in time this morning introducing the whole book of Haggai, all 
right? So you're going to have to do a little bit of research on your own if you want to understand the broader aspect of the context of the book of Haggai. But I do want to give you a little bit of context because it's important that we understand what Haggai is facing here as a prophet of God. Now, to really capture the essence of what he's dealing with here, here's what I would ask. First, has there anyone here been to Steamboat Springs, Colorado? Anyone at all? All right, there's a few of you, all right? Steamboat Springs, I had the privilege of traveling for Ambassador, which is a college that I went to uh, for a number of summers. And, um, and I've been able to travel. I've been able to see every, st- I think only three states I haven't been in, Alaska, Hawaii, and Washington. I'm, I can't remember if I've been in North Dakota or not. I really think I have. But those, I've been able to travel for weeks across the United States. And I'm not talking about just dropping into an airport as a layover. I'm talking about actually traversing across those states. And what God has given us a beautiful land in which to, uh, to live. It's an amazing, amazing country. And in all of the sites that I have seen, there's just, to me, there's something about Steamboat Springs. You're coming in, into it over the high pass through 40, Highway 40, and there's an overlook there. And you look out and you literally, you see this valley that's really like a high plain because of the altitude open up almost, almost in, in a bowl of mountains. And in this middle of this valley is the Yampa River that's flowing through the middle of it. It is just exquisite. It is amazing. I, I remember we pulled off, I think there's a 7% grade for miles that takes you down into uh, Steamboat Springs. And that's the place where I believe, if it's still true, our Olympic skiers practice. And so it's a beautiful area, beautiful place. And it, it just kind of holds this almost um, mysterious place in my mind is one of the most beautiful places that I've ever been. And I was there in the summer. I would love to see it in the fall with the aspens changing. So you have a place like Steamboat Springs. And to contrast that, I would take you to the idea or the place of Detroit, Michigan. (laughs) Now, Michigan has some beautiful areas. Michigan is a beautiful state. However, Detroit is like the armpit of America. I don't mean that in, in, in a bad way other than what it is. About a year ago or so, I flew into Detroit. And uh, in fact, I went to a wonderful place north of it. And uh, we had a wonderful time with a church there and a sportsman's banquet. And it was beautiful. I loved where the church was located. However, Detroit, it's just dirty. I mean, you're flying into it. And even the sky, the haze over top of it. Uh, it's just, I don't know, it's depressing. It's depressing. And one would have to ask this question. Why would anyone living in Steamboat Springs up and move to Detroit. I don't know of any really logical reasoning other than God calls you there, right? I, I, I just, I would not want to live in Detroit. I just wouldn't. And there's a number of places in Michigan I, that I could live, but Detroit, oh, that would be, it would be hard. Now you have to understand what's taking place here with the children of Israel. The children of Israel, 70 years previous to this, Nebuchadnezzar comes into Judah and he lays waste to the city of Jerusalem and he takes Israel captive. And Israel is carted off. These, these, um, most of the Jews were killed. A select group of probably the, the king's family, those that were brilliant, those that were beautiful, uh, if you will, the, um, the, the best of the Jewish people Nebuchadnezzar took with him back to Babylon. And Judah was just a wasteland. And these people have grown up, they've lived, most of them went when they were children, and they have lived in one of the most affluent 
world kingdoms that the world has ever seen. Remember, Babylon was the head of gold. Babylon, even today, is notched in history as one of the most beautiful places or, if you will, capital cities of, uh, and, and empires that just amazes us. And the Jews, as the Jews normally do, they thrived there in Babylon. I mean, it's amazing. They're God's chosen people, but you can put the Jewish people just about in any culture, and eventually they're going to do well. And the children of Israel had, that were left had multiplied, and they had integrated into the society of Babylon, and they were doing well. Well, in a moment, the Babylonian Empire was overtaken by the Medes and Persians. Remember, you go to Daniel chapter 5, you have Belshazzar. He's brought the instruments of the temple that were taken by Nebuchadnezzar. And Belshazzar has, has Daniel there, and they see a hand writing on the wall. And what is it? Daniel interprets it, that he's been, uh, uh, he's been weighed in the balance and found wanting. And that night, really, for the most part, a peaceful change of power took place. The Medo-Persians came in. It was not a violent overtaking. They did it in a night, and Babylon was no more, and now we had the country, uh, or if you will, the empire of the Medo-Persians. Now, what happens at that moment, and Johnny, could you hit the next slide for me? What happens that moment is many times, and that's probably hard to see, so let me walk you through it, all right? But you have 70 years of exile where the children of Israel are in um, the kingdom of Babylon. And then what takes place is Persia conquers the Babylonian empire, Right? which we know of the conquering king there was Cyrus. What's amazing about Cyrus is that God had already prophesied 150 years before Cyrus becomes the empire or the emperor, if you will, of the Babylonian empire, which now is the Persian empire. God had, had already prophesied that Cyrus would build, that God would move in this Persian king's heart to build the temple. Listen to this in 2 Chronicles Chapter 36, verses 22 and 23. It says, Now in the first year of Cyrus, king of Persia, that the word of the Lord spoken by the mouth of Jeremiah might be accomplished, the Lord stirred up the spirit of Cyrus, king of Persia, that he made a proclamation throughout his kingdom and put also in writing, saying, Thus saith Cyrus, king of Persia, All the kingdoms of the earth hath the Lord God of heaven given me, and he hath charged me to build him an house in Jerusalem which is in Judah. Who is there among you of all his people? The Lord his God be with him and let him go up. Now this is amazing, right? This is one of those things we look at the word of God and we know that the word of God is in fact not a collection of men's writings, but in fact the word of God because Jeremiah, 150 years before we'd ever even heard of the person named Cyrus, God says, I'm gonna raise up a world leader. His name is Cyrus. He's called out by name and he's gonna build my temple again. And so what we have here is this. We have Persia uh, takes over the Babylonian empire and then we have the edict from Cyrus for the Jews to return, and we have the first return of the Jews under Ezra. And Cyrus sends Zerubbabel. Now, who is Zerubbabel? He's the grandson of the, the, um, the king of Judah, Jehoiakim. All right, again, we see that lineage, the Davidic covenant, right? There's always going to be a line, all right, from David that sits on the throne. So Zerubbabel comes back as the governor, right? And so what takes place is they go back and we see in Ezra that they begin to build the temple. Now they come, they come from the most luxurious, affluent empire the world has ever seen. And what are they going to? They're literally going to a barren wasteland. 
Nebuchadnezzar so destroyed Jerusalem and the temple. We're talking about Solomon's temple, which was really a wonder of the ancient world, right? He destroyed it so bad. Where do they have to begin to rebuild the temple? They have to begin with the foundations. Begin with the foundations. So in the second year, they begin working and they finish the foundations. What happens? Well, they begin to experience adversity. They begin to experience a little bit of pushback from the Samaritans and maybe even from some of the Persians. And so all of a sudden, the building of the temple halts. And for 16 years, the children of Israel do nothing. For 16 years, Zerubbabel, Joshua, the son of Josedek, all right, the leaders that had taken these children of Israel back. And remember, when, when Cyrus gets up and he says, hey, God's told me to build the house of the Lord. I want you to go back. They, they take about 40, there's about 42,000 Jews that leave Babylon, which is now Persia, and, and traverse back to Jerusalem. And with their servants, it's roughly about 50,000 people. And the only people that are left in that area of the world, the only people that are left in Jerusalem were the, most, the poorest of the poor, the Jews that had, not, uh, that had not gone to Babylon. There was nothing there. The walls were not there. And we see a progression here because you see Esther. Uh, she's under Queen, uh, King Xerxes, which is other, also known as Ahasuerus. And then we have Nehemiah down here. <clears throat> which uh, is later on in Artaxerxes. And so this is the progression that we have. We have Ezra, uh, then we see Esther, then we see uh, Nehemiah. You can go back to the next slide, uh, Johnny. And so what we have is with these people, they walk into Jerusalem and it is absolutely horrific. And they begin to build. 16 years then, they stop. 16 years goes by and nothing happens. And God reaches down into the heart of a prophet named Haggai to show up and to give the message that he has to the children of Israel. Now, we don't know much about Haggai. Some people think that he came from um, Babylon with the first uh, journey back to Israel. Maybe, maybe not. It may have been that God stirred him up and he steps into town. And we think that Haggai is an older prophet and he works in tandem uh, with uh, Zechariah here. And, uh, and we believe that... Um, that Zechariah is a younger prophet, all right? And so Haggai, Haggai steps up into the town, and this is what he does as he's walking through town. He's listening. And this is where my imagination, my sanctified imagination, I think, takes over here, right? Haggai's walking in. What is he hearing? He's listening. And he's just, he's just paying attention to what, what's on the heart of people. Maybe he's watching the news, or maybe he's picked up the local Jerusalem Times, and he's just like, well, what are, what are people about these days? And and uh, here's what he hears. He hears, hears people talking about, oh, well, you know what? I've got to go get up to the mountain. I've got to get some wood. And I've got to build my houses. Oh, we're remodeling the house. Did you know we're remodeling the house? And they're talking about, well, you know, it's the second house, our, our summer home. Yeah, we've, we've decided to, to build a summer home. And then someone's like, well, we're talking, we decided to build a second house or a, a second summer home. Or we're remodeling this home. And, and so he, he, he listens, and this is what they're talking about. And so what does he do? He decides to get a, um, and this is in my imagination, all right? He decides to get a meeting with, with Zerubbabel and Joshua, the son of Josedek. And, and as he's standing there, uh, in, maybe in, their, in, in the, uh, the secretary's office before he gets brought into these two leader, leaders of Israel, he, he looks up on the wall and he, and he sees the calendar of events 
uh, for Jerusalem. And he's got a scratch in his head because he sees time off for uh, Zerubbabel. He's going to build his house and, and he's going to remodel his house. And, and you've got uh, Joshua, the son of Ze- uh, Josedek there. He's going to rebuild his, his second house. And this is what they were about. And Haggai begins to look at the children of Israel and he shows up with a message of God. And what they were dealing with was this. They had come to this idea. Well, now's not the time. Oh, they were busy. Look what they were doing. Look what they were involved in. In verse number six, it says, you, you have sown much, bring in little. You eat and have not enough and you drink and are not filled. And you, you clothe, but there's none warm. And he that earneth wages, earneth wages to put in a bag with holes. Now, what were they about? Well, they were busy. They, they weren't lazy people. Don't misunderstand what I'm saying. It, it wasn't though they were just sitting, you know, in the shade trees of Jerusalem and just saying, well, we don't have anything to do. No, these were very industrious people. Uh, they were sowing and reaping and they were, um, they were eating and drinking and, and they were worried about clothes and they were earning wages. Now, some of them may say, well, Pastor, those really aren't bad things and you'd be right. There's nothing wrong with sowing and reaping. In fact, it would be foolish for us to sow and not expect to reap. And you know what? If you sow, the Bible has a lot to say about horticulture, about gardening, about sowing and reaping, right? About farming. In fact, God is pleased when we're industrious. So there's nothing wrong specifically with the idea of sowing and reaping. There's nothing wrong with eating. Praise the Lord. We're Baptists. We like to eat. There's nothing wrong with drinking. We're, we're, this is not talking about alcoholic drink. It's talking about just enjoying uh, a drink. Now, I have this problem. I don't like water. Now, I'll drink water, but it's boring. I would much rather have flavor to it. You know what I'm saying? Like, like and, and since COVID, I actually like unsweetened tea with a little bit of lemon. I'd rather drink unsweetened tea with lemon than drink straight water. I just like flavor, right? And that gets me in trouble because what happens is I start drinking sodas and those aren't healthy for you, right? But, but there was nothing wrong. There's nothing wrong with enjoying a beverage. And they were eating and they were drinking. They, had, they needed clothes. There's nothing wrong with wearing clothes. There's nothing wrong with having nice clothes. There's nothing wrong with earning a wage. I hope you do. I hope God's called you to go out and to earn a wage that you do the best you can for the glory of God. But what was the problem? The problem was this, that in the agenda of their lives, in the priorities of their lives, it wasn't that God's house wasn't on the pri- was low on the priorities. It wasn't there at all. They had abandoned the priorities of God. God had sent them back to build his house, and they had totally abandoned what God had called them to do. Now, it wasn't really about the temple necessarily. We know this, that God doesn't dwell in a building that's made with hands, but it was important to God. It was important that Israel go back and build that temple. And they had gone there to do that, and then they had abandoned God's priorities. They had gotten busy. They had gotten busy in all other avenues and aspects of life, and Haggai steps on the scene. And this is what they were saying. Now, listen to it. Verse 2, thus speaketh the Lord of hosts, saying, This people say the time has not come, the time that the Lord's house should be built. You know, they're saying, they're saying, you know what, just now's not the right time. Now's not the right time. I say, oh, Haggai, you don't understand. Boy, I tell you what, politically, this is not, this is not advantageous for us. I mean, the politics have to be right. I mean, we've got to have Republicans in power before we decide to serve God, Right? 
They're saying, oh, you just don't understand. The Samaritans, they don't like that we're here. They've kind of pushed it back against us. I just think what we ought to do, instead of creating an international incident, let's just hold off. It's not the right time. Or they may say this, well, you just don't understand economically. It's bad right now. I mean, come on, man. I mean, Nebuchadnezzar, he didn't leave much. I mean, look at the walls. The walls are torn down. I mean, we had to start with the foundation. At least we got the foundation done. It's not right. I mean, economically, it is not the right time. Boy, interest rates are high. I mean, I'm telling you, the, 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 the National Bank of Persia, have you seen the interest rates and the loans they're giving right now? You know what they were saying? They were saying it wasn't right. It wasn't the right time. You know what's fascinating about that? <laughs> Do you realize what God did to make it the right time? Think about the supernatural sovereignty of God in this moment. 100 years, 150 years before anyone's ever even heard of Cyrus, God allows Cyrus to, to overtake Babylon. And, and really, a, for the most part, a peaceful exchange of power. And he puts in the heart of a Persian king to send the children of Israel back. And he sends them back with what they need. He sends them back with his authorization. He sends them back with the supplies that they needed. Really gave them a blank check. That, that is supernatural. And yet the children of Israel are like, well, it's not the right time. It's just not the right time. So Haggai, he asks them this question. He says, well, it's not the right time that the house of the Lord should be built. He says, but in verse 4, it must be the right time for you, O ye, to dwell in your sealed houses and this house lie waste. The word sealed there has the idea of paneled and has the idea of covered or treasured. Oh, you know what they had done? They got busy. They had neglected, completely abandoned the priorities of God. And now what they're doing is this. They had focused on their own houses. Their houses were, we're not saying that they were opulent or, or we're not saying that they were luxurious, but they, at least they were covered. They were put in order. Uh, they looked nice. And yet God's agenda, God's priorities had laid waste. So he tells them to consider their ways twice. I want to look at both of those this morning. First he says this. In verse number five, he says, Now therefore, thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. He says, I want you to stop. I want you to step outside of what you've, uh, what you've allowed yourself to get into. And I want you to just consider I want you to examine what is happening here. What does he say? He says, you sown much, but you bring in little. You eat, but you have not enough. You drink, but are not filled. You're clothed, but there is none warm. You earn wages, but you earn them to put them in a bag with holes. He, he goes on later in the passage. Look what he says in verse uh, number nine. You look for much and lo, it came to little. And when you brought it home, I did blow upon it. Why, saith the Lord of hosts? Because of mine house that is waste. And you run every man to his own house. Verse 10 and 11. Therefore the heaven over you is stayed from dew. And the earth is stayed from her fruit. And I called for a drought upon the land. And upon the mountains and upon the corn and upon the new wine and upon the oil, and upon that which the ground bringeth forth, and upon men, 
and upon cattle, upon all the labor of their hands. You realize what's happening here? God's saying, listen, because you've abandoned my priorities, because it's not even registering on your radar, because you really don't care about what I want, and all you care about is what you want. Your life is consumed with your own priorities. Here's what happens. What happens is this. You sow, but you don't reap much. You eat, but you're not filled. You drink, but your thirst is never assuaged. He says you clothe yourself, but you're not warm. He said you bring in money. You come home and you say, hey, hey, honey, look at this money. Look at this paycheck. Boy, I tell you what, it's a great paycheck. And before you can turn around, it's gone. He says, you bring it home. And you know what I do? He says, God says, you bring it home and you have this treasure that you've worked for. And I just go, and it's gone. Friend, let me tell you something. Life will not work unless you're living according to God's design. You cannot claim to have a relationship with God, a relationship with Jesus Christ. Here it would have been the children of Israel. Today it would be Christians, right? You cannot claim to have a relationship with God and then live your own life and think it's going to work out. It's not. That's not how God's designed it. When we live in rebellion to God's priorities, when we live, when we live selfish, um, independent lives of God, you know what God does? Wow. We sow, but we don't reap. Oh, we reap a little bit, but not enough. We eat, but there's just, it doesn't fill us. We drink, but we're just not satisfied. Hey, do you see that today? I'll tell you, I do. I see it all over. You want to talk about, you know, we are one of the most richest countries in the world and no one's satisfied. We have affluence like the world has never seen and yet we're not satisfied. Oh, we, we can never have enough. We're always grasping for something else. We're always trying to, uh, trying to satisfy the soul. And God says, listen, it doesn't work that way. You want to claim that you love me and that you want to abandon what I think is important, what I believe is a priority, and then you think it's all going to work out. It's not. Yeah. And God says, well, you know what I've done? I've withheld the dew from you. Now, in an arid climate like Israel, the dew would be important. They had the early and the latter rains, but what sustained crops and what sustained animals was the moisture that would be present every morning and when God says well what I've done is I've just taken away the dew completely he said not only have I done that I've sent a drought now opposite of what is thought today God's the one that controls the weather okay you, you may be here this morning you may be questioning who controls the weather it's not China okay it's God God's always controlled the weather and you know what God did God just turned the spigot off in Israel he turned it off. He said, no, that's not how this is going to work. In essence, he's saying, why'd you come back? I sent you back to rebuild the temple, and for 16 years you've done nothing. He said, why are you here? Why? Why would you leave Persia, which was Babylon, to come here if you're not going to do the will of God, if you're not going to do what's important to me? So he says, Consider. Consider, you know, friend, maybe the reason the bills always seem to be bigger than the supply and maybe the clothes never last very long and maybe the reason that 
You can eat and you drink, but you're never satisfied. Maybe it's because your priorities are wrong in your life. You can't tip your hat to God and make verbal ovations to your faithfulness and then live a life that abandons the priorities of God. It doesn't work that way. He gives us a second consider. He tells us in verse 7, he says, Thus saith the Lord of hosts, consider your ways. Verse number 8, go up to the mountain and bring wood. (laughs) You know what's amazing? This is not complicated. For them to get back to a place of blessing, for them to get back to a place that God could bless them, in all of their endeavors, because we have to remember this, that Jesus Christ said in his earthly ministry a truth that must be imprinted upon our hearts, and that's this, for without me, ye can do nothing. We will never get our priorities done. We will never accomplish the task of our dreams if we are not doing it by the power of Jesus Christ. It's very simple. You know, we complicate this thing called Christianity. People are like, oh, I just don't know, you know. I need a seven-step process to get back to where I need to be. Well, I didn't take the children of Israel through that. <laughs> it's, it's very simple. Most people know if you want to get back to pleasing God, stop doing that which displeases him and start doing what does please him, Right? Stop doing what you knew or what you know took you away from the presence of God. Cut that out of your life and then start doing that very thing that you abandoned that you know that God wants you to do. It's simple. I mean, you know, this, people talk about the King James Version, hard to understand. Boy, it's pretty simple here. Verse number eight, he says, go up to the mountain and bring wood, right? He said, hey, you know what you've been doing for your own houses? You know, you went up to the mountain and you brought wood and you built your own houses. He says, now, this is what you do to get back to the priority that I've placed and that's go to the mountain and get wood, bring it down. Look what it says. Build the house, right? You know, take that wood, start framing it up, put it on that foundation you've got and build the house that I've called you to build. Look what it says. And I will take pleasure in it. And I will be glorified, saith the Lord. You know, we think about we think about pleasing God. God is pleased with obedience. Boy, it was a significant thing, right? That the children of Israel had the house of the Lord in Jerusalem. God says, listen, if you'll just go up to the mountains and you'll get wood and you'll bring it down here and you'll build this house that I've called you to build because it's a priority in my agenda, right? He says, if you'll do this, First of all, I'll be pleased. I'll be pleased. He says, second of all, I will be glorified. Not not that that building or that house would totally house the presence of God, but here's what would happen. Those around Jerusalem and those within Jerusalem would know that the God of heaven was blessing the children of Israel again, that his presence was there. And that separated the children of Israel from every other people group in the world. That the presence of God dwelt in the land of Israel between the the cherubims. 
That house was a, vis a visible representation of God's blessing, his covenant with Israel, and his presence. You know, when we obey, when we put God's priorities first in our life, you know what we show to the world around us? We glorify God. And what they see is a visible representation of the blessing of God and the presence of God in our lives. It takes me back to Matthew chapter 6 and verse 33. It says, but seek ye first the kingdom of God and his righteousness and all these things shall be added unto you. But seek ye first. I gave this illustration in my uh, staff devos this past week. I'll give it here as we close. I really enjoyed doing some elk hunting this year. It's good to sometimes get away and just decompress. One of the young men that was hunting with us, he hunted with me last year. His name's Cody. Cody is eat up with cow farming. Like, he loves it. Like, he's going to own his own cow farm one day. And so a lot of our conversations were about cows um, this past uh, trip. And we were talking about it, and he's like, what you need to do, John, is you need to get you about 20 three-weight cows. And I'm like, what is a three-weight cow? He's like, well, it's in the 300 range. I'm like, oh, okay. He said, put them on a the field. He said, give them some drags. And he said, you know, they're going to get sick because they came through that, that feedlot where you bought them, the auction place. He said, so you just go ahead and preventative, give them some of this medicine. He said, you just let them eat on that field, maybe give them two bags of feed just to help them out a little bit each week, he said. And you grow them from about three-weight to six-weight. He said, you buy a three-weight cow, you're going to buy about $850. You're going to sell it about $1,400 to $1,600. You can say, you'll make ten grand." Man, my mind started rolling. I'm like, hmm, there's a field behind my house. I wonder if I could lease that thing. We had to put up a fence. I mean, we'll drop 20, cows, 20 calves on that thing. You know, they'll just eat the whole time. You know, this is going to be easy. Well, I went to pick up barbecue sauce from uh, Jake Lehman. He was a dairy farmer that I worked for as a kid for a number of summers, and so I... I thought, well, I'll just bounce this off of him, you know. I'm ready to divest everything I have and buy cows, right? And uh, which isn't much, but I thought, hey, it'd probably do better than the than the stock market at this point, right? <laughs> and so I said, Brother Lehman, I said he's a believer, and I said, uh, let me ask you this: Can you take? And I just walked him through the whole scenario, and he listened. He's real patient, man. He listened, and he looked at me. He goes, you know what I tell you? I said, what's that, Mr. Lehman? I said, because I just want to know, is that, is that feasible? He goes, he says, John, if I was you, I'd just stick to preaching. <laughs> now, I appreciate that. I appreciate that. You know why? Oh, I get harebrained ideas all the time. I do. That's just, I'm a dreamer, right? I count my chickens before they hatch. I love to get in the, I'll get into all kinds of stuff. We get halfway into it and go, hmm, I shouldn't be in this, right? It's wasting my time. For me, right? For me. Of course, you have to know what God's will is for your life. But I appreciate that advice. You know why? Because that should be the priority of my life. Yeah. Why? Because that's what God's called me to do. Sure. God hasn't called me. God has not called me to be involved in every other little thing. You know what God's called me to do? God's called me to shepherd this flock. And his word has to be a priority in my life. And if we're not careful, what we'll do is we'll abandon the priorities of God. And we'll go through seasons of time where God's like, 
What do you have to do? What do I have to do to get you to see that this is not what I'm calling you to do? Every time you bring it home, I go, Now, now let me just let me go let me go from preaching to metal just for a second, okay? I can tell you this: you don't make a priority of coming to church. God's not gonna bless your life. It's obedience. He says, "Forsake not the assembling of yourselves together." By the way, this day is not called the morning of the Lord. It's called the day of the Lord. This is called the the Lord's day. He owns the whole day, the whole day. It's not the Sabbath, but if you look at the parallel, God gave the children of Israel a whole day to serve him, right? To take rest. This is the Lord's day. You can't have the blessing of God in your life and abandon God's priority of worship on this day. You choose to rob God of your tithes. You say, oh, you know what? I just, I can't afford that. You know what? I can't afford not to obey God in that area. You know why? Because God goes, you say, why? Why would God do that? Because God knows the best place for you and I is in obedience so that we can experience his blessing. You're listening to the wrong music. You're going to the wrong places. You're watching the wrong entertainment. You've abandoned the priorities of God. The priorities of God is righteousness and holiness in our lives. You abandon that. God's going to go, oh, you say, oh, no, no, no. I know some people that say they're saved and they're rolling in money. Yeah, because that's the only measure of success, right? That's the only measure. No, it's not. I'm telling you, you can walk through this book and look at the things that God commands us to do. And if we are not obeying, if we have abandoned God's commands, then God's going to go. Yeah. You say, oh, that's, that's some tough preaching. That's Bible. If God would do it to his children, you think for a moment he wouldn't do it for us? And I say not to us, but for us. Why? Because the best place for the Christian is in the middle of the will of God doing what makes God happy, what he takes pleasure in. Because as the preacher has preached this past week, there's coming a day where we will stand in front of Jesus Christ and we will give an account for how we made God's priorities our priorities. God's not going to be impressed with the NFL. He's not going to be impressed with game day. He's not going to be impressed with a NASCAR. I don't know why anybody's impressed with NASCAR. I mean, listen, if I'm going to spend that kind of money on fuel and drive 500 miles, I want to be somewhere different when I get out, right, than where I get. That don't make a bit of difference. I don't know, I'm telling you, it hurts my feelings, right? Now, I do like fast cars and I like big engines, so there is that one aspect. If I could drive it, I would probably like it, all right? Um, of course, I couldn't do it, but I would like to try, all right? But, you know, God's not impressed with that. That's not making one little wave in heaven. You know what God wants? His people to live according to his priorities. But seek ye first the kingdom of God. Seek ye first the kingdom of God. 
Seek it first in the morning. Seek it first every day. Seek it first every year. Seek it first for your lifetime. Don't wait. Don't wait till you've till you've literally uh, given everything, all of your life for this world and, the, and your priorities and at the very end say, well, I've got a few years left. Maybe I'll serve God. No, seek ye first the kingdom of God. Because he says, then I'll take pleasure and then I will be glorified. Father, I pray that you'd work in our hearts this morning. Father, I pray you'd take this Old Testament passage of where You are speaking to the children of Israel. Help us to understand what you have said you are still saying. Their history is done. Their choices were made. Your judgment came. Your blessings were realized when they obeyed. The temple was built. Father, they... they, It was given to us, but it's history. Help us to understand that the message of priority is still pertinent and applicable today. Father, help us to live our lives to please you. Not ourself, not this world, and definitely not Satan, but to please you. With heads bowed and eyes closed this morning, I realized my message this morning was not what we would consider a salvation message. But if you're here this morning and you don't know Jesus Christ as your Savior, boy, we'd love to take a Bible and show you how you can know heaven is your home. In just a moment, we're going to have an invitation. And if you're here this morning and you don't know that heaven is your home, boy, I encourage you to come. Heads will be bowed. The eyes will be closed. I encourage you to come. Take me by the hand. Allow us to take a Bible and show you how you can know that your sins are forgiven. We're not going to embarrass you. You're not joining the church. Nothing like that. We just want to show you that forgiveness is available to you through the sacrifice of Jesus Christ, his death, burial, and resurrection. Christian, can I ask you this? Are you living with God's priorities in view? Is your life and your actions is what I'm talking about? What consumes you? Is it what what God wants or is it what you want? Hey, I'm not saying sowing and reaping is bad. I'm not. I'm not saying eating is bad. I'm not saying having clothes is bad. That's not what I'm saying. I'm not saying earning a wage. I hope you can earn the, the best wage that you could possibly earn with the gifts that God's given you. That's not what I'm talking about. What I'm talking about is this. Have you abandoned the priorities of God? Are you faithful? Well, I don't know how God spoke to your heart, but I encourage you in this moment of invitation that you do business with God. If you would stand with me, Father, I pray that you work now in this moment. I pray that you conform us into the image of Jesus Christ by the power of your spirit. We ask these things in Jesus' name. Amen. Heads bowed and eyes closed as the pianist begins to play. God spoke to your heart. Will you come? What are your priorities this morning? 